0: I'm so excited to be here. I feel like it's been a long time since I've been with you, and I'm so glad to be back. My name is Adam, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I've been away. I I was in Egypt with Pastor Guy, and I'm going to tell you some stories about that today. But then, right upon my return home from Egypt, I turned around almost immediately and went away with our elders on a prayer retreat. And we took with us those 700 prayer cards that you filled out. And we prayed, there was eight of us and 700 prayer cards. You do the math. But uh, we prayed all weekend for every one of you, everyone who filled out a card. And it was an incredible weekend. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. But uh, I'm just so glad to be back and to be a part of this fellowship. Do you ever wonder, God, do I take for granted what a joy and a privilege it is to come here on Sunday morning? Boy, when you're away for a while, you realize how special this place is. Amen. So good. So good to be here. Will you do this? Pull out your Bible. Open to the Gospel of Luke. Ushers are coming now. You'll want a Bible in your hands. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. They will hand you one. We're back in Luke, chapter 12 is where we go. While you're turning there, can I express my deep gratitude to all of you for praying for Guy and I while we were in Egypt. We felt your prayers. Okay, we were so impacted there. This trip was life changing for me, and so thank you for praying. I've got some pictures of this trip. So this is the this was our little team here. Uh, there's me far right. There's Pastor Guy. That gentleman in the middle is. Camille, that's kind of a feast that we were eating before we went to church, and Guy preached that night in Cairo. In Egypt, that's the size of the of the meals they serve you. And then when you say you're full, that means, okay, feed the white people more. So that's what happened. I'm full. No, you're not. Eat some more. And it happened every time. And so Camille, our brother, um, Camille Kalata, his wife Rachel, they live here in Portland, but he's an Egyptian native. He's been a missionary in the middle East for 30 plus years, an amazing brother, I'll be talking a little bit more about him And then that's Darren Larson on the left. And Darren Larson was our youth pastor 15 years ago. And now Darren is up in Seattle. He's a pastor of a church up there. And we discovered that Darren was a very popular guy in Egypt. Okay? So just look at him. Who does Darren look like? Because every time we would go to like a touristy area, people would swarm around Darren. Teenagers would swarm around Darren, Egyptian teenagers, and they would take selfies with Darren and we're like, they think he's someone famous. And finally, I figured it out. Next slide. Adam Levine from The Voice. They thought, (laughs) okay... They thought the voice was coming to Egypt or something, you know, and Guy and I figured out, they must think Guy and I are the bodyguards, which is really sad, okay. But anyway, so Darren, an amazing brother, and now let me show you, here's a picture of Camille, and this is one of the pastors that we spent time with. Let me tell you something about Camille, all right. This brother is an incredible, incredible follower of Jesus, um, his One of his kids attends our church. He's been faithful to the Lord for 30-plus years. He knows the, the word. He was our guide. He was with us. And Camille has faithfully ministered to pastors like that pastor there on the left, Tofiq, for years in Egypt. He flies over there every year to serve these pastors. And he takes over there a vision for the Christians in Egypt to not just minister to their own, but to start thinking about missions. So Camille's vision is that Christians in Egypt, pastors and leaders, would leave Egypt and go into other Arab-speaking countries around them and preach the gospel. And we had this rare privilege to go over there and teach. I think I've got the next slide is a a picture of the 40-plus pastors and leaders and, and missionaries that we got to teach And uh, it it was incredible. I'll tell you, the thing that touched me the most was to meet the Christians in Egypt. I was blown away by their faithfulness. It's really hard to be a Christian in Egypt. Let me tell you something. So hard. They are a vast minority, a vast minority, and they're a persecuted minority. And many of the Christians sort of by name in Egypt are, are nominal Christians. There's a really large branch of the Christian church. It's called the Coptic Coptic Church. A lot of Coptics are, are very nominal Christians. We were focusing on sort of the Protestant evangelical group, and this group is tiny, it's like less than 400,000 people in a country of 90 million. I mean, we're talking like a tiny minority, and they're persecuted. And they constantly face opposition. Every time they go to church, they go to church under the threat of violence. It's surreal to, it's surreal to drive around the country and when when we would, we would be in a van and we would go to church. And when we would get to the church, there were these 15-foot stone walls with a metal gate. They would open the gate and the van would drive into a compound and they would shut the gate and we would go to worship. And, and the Christians worship like that. That's how they worship. Every time they go to church, there's just a tiny little hint of danger. And so to be around these leaders who are just faithfully serving the Lord, it was really hard. I'm going to tell you something. Teaching the Old Testament with a translator is super hard. I've got a picture of the translator. It's the last slide. That's that's Kes Ben, who, man, this brother, he's a pastor and just incredibly faithful, and we would teach and and Caspian would try to translate, and um, one day, Guy and I were talking about, this is just so hard. Is this even having an impact? So the picture right before that, Kevin, this brother, um, I, I grabbed him, and I was like, is this, is this even helpful to you? Like, wouldn't it be better to bring in people who speak Arabic to teach you? And he, he got super emotional. He grabbed me by the shoulders, and he said, no. He goes, we can can get an Arabic speaker anytime we want. You have no idea how encouraging it is for us that your church would send you over here, let you go for two weeks to come and spend time with us and encourage us. He said, no one comes here from the West. No one comes here. We feel totally isolated. The only people we have are the people in our own churches. So please, please come back. You have no idea how encouraging this was. And I would get up in front of churches and I would get up in front of groups of leaders and I would say to them, my church in in America is praying for you. And people would get emotional. It was powerful. Their faithfulness in the face of opposition. And let me tell you something, River West. That is like the perfect segue to the text we're going to read this morning because the whole passage is about opposition. We look at it Luke chapter 12. The setting of Luke 12 is threat. The very first words of Luke 12 remind us of the context. And the context is opposition. Luke tells us, if you look in your Bible, the very first words of chapter 12 say, in the meantime, and that. That points us back to what we just read. And what we just read at the end of 11, if you look at it in your Bible, is that the Pharisees are starting to be threatened by Jesus. And they're starting to press on Jesus. And and Luke describes them as prowling, waiting like a lion, waiting to pounce for Jesus to say something wrong, to say something controversial. Why? Because they want to trap him. Ultimately, they want to kill him. And so the intensity is ramping up and the opposition is ramping up. And Jesus sees an opportunity in the face of opposition to encourage his disciples. And so that's what happens in Luke Luke 12. Luke 12, the whole chapter is a sermon. And in this sermon, Jesus says, let me give you some wisdom for how to to live in this world where you're going to face opposition. He knows. His disciples will face opposition. Opposition; Their very lives will be threatened and Jesus knew that Christians in Lake Oswego in 2019, we would face opposition. Luke 12 is for you and I. What kind of wisdom does Jesus share with Christians who want to live wisely in a world where where they, they experience opposition for their faith? Well, let's find out. Will you look at it together with me? I'm going to read our passage today. We're going to just do Luke 12. 1 through 12, we're going to preach every single verse of this passage. Here we go. I'll read it. You look along. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell." Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man, That's intense. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Verse eleven. Let's move on quickly. And when they and when um, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Amazing passage. Jesus, there he is. He's standing with his disciples. The Pharisees are there, they're prowling. They want to they catch him, they want to kill him. The intensity is rising. Crowds are gathering. Luke describes thousands and thousands of people pressing in. That too is a threat. And what does Jesus do? He speaks first to his disciples. And he says, if you're going to live wisely in a world like this, there are three themes you're going to have to think deeply about. Write these down. Theme number one, you saw it there. Hypocrisy, if you're going to live and follow me in a world of opposition, you've got to think deeply about hypocrisy. Theme number two, fear. That's the second paragraph. So theme one, hypocrisy. Theme two, fear. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus says, you're going to have to think about your Christian witness. That moment when you, when you have to stand and proclaim your allegiance to Christ, that moment is critical. How critical it is for a Christian living in a world of opposition to think deeply about my personal witness to Christ. Amazing. Hypocrisy, fear, Christian witness. Today I want to walk through each of those, dive in deep, think about them. It will be an encouragement to you. We begin with... Hypocrisy. You know, the crowds that day, 10,000 maybe, imagine it, thousands of people, and Jesus realized this is an opportunity to talk about the temptation of hypocrisy. There they are. Crowds have gathered. Why are they there? We don't know, but they're trampling one another. They're pressing in. And when a crowd gathers, that can be a little stroke to the ego, you know? You can start to think, we're a big deal. We're kind of popular, right? And maybe Jesus was watching his disciples and realizing, they're kind of mesmerized by this massive crowd. And being mesmerized by a crowd can sometimes cause you to be tempted to continue to entertain the crowd. Please the crowd. Say things the crowd wants to hear to keep the crowd. Jesus says, be careful. And so what does he talk about? He says, we got to talk about hypocrisy. Very interesting word in the Greek, hypocrisis. It's a Greek word. It comes from the world of the theater. All right, the Greek word described someone who who practiced the art of play acting. So it was an actor on the stage who would put on a mask and they would and they would speak lines and they would project a certain character or a or a, a persona. There were sort of two people there. There's the real person behind the mask, and then there's the projected person who's delivering lines, who's projecting a persona. And in the New Testament, that word is only used to describe something negative, a kind of duplicity where I have my private self, but then I also have my my public self. And isn't it true, brothers and sisters, we're all tempted towards that, aren't we? Sort of that to be one person in public, but then to be another person in private, it's almost like that's, that's human nature. It just goes with the territory. Jesus says, be careful. Have you ever wondered... What is that Disney princess really like backstage? Okay, you're at Disneyland, and there's the princess, and she's floating around, and she's graceful and bubbly. But what's she like before she's had her first cup of coffee? That's what I want to know. How rude is she when she's ordering the triple pump, soy, latte, I don't know. And Jesus says, be careful, all right? This was his number one critique of the Pharisees. He's like, you guys are hypocrites, You're one person in front of the crowds and you're another person behind closed doors. You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup you ignore. And you do it because you want to keep those crowds gathered. But here's what's amazing. Look at what Jesus says in verse 2. He turns this warning to his disciples. This is not a word for the Pharisees. This is a word for the church. Jesus says, be careful, be aware. This is about... You now. This is about me. Hypocrisy, Jesus says, is very subtle. It's it's very small, like leaven. Leaven was a tiny little piece of raw bread that was kept aside, and it was put in water, and they would allow it to ferment, and then when they would bat when they would bake a new batch of bread, they would take that tiny little sliver of leaven and they would weave it into the new batch It would cause the bread to rise. And the metaphor is that that little piece of leaven would spread through the whole loaf and impact the whole loaf and cause it to rise. And Jesus says, this is a metaphor for the danger of hypocrisy. It's very subtle. You don't even recognize sometimes that it's there. So be on your guard. Isn't it true? Think about this. We sometimes... We tell ourselves that we have two worlds. I've got my public world where I'm out there in public. I'm in the foyer, I'm at work, and then I've got my private world. And sometimes I can tell myself that those two worlds will always remain separated. Jesus used the word, the the, the analogy of rooms in a house. Did you see that in verse four? He's like, there's like your private room, and then there's the the the, the rooftop. And sometimes we can tell ourselves, oh, yeah, those two spaces will forever be separated, but wait a minute, what if they won't be forever separated? What if what I'm supposed to do as a Christian is live with the recognition that a day is coming when everything that I said, everything that I thought in that private world will be revealed? And the point is not to make us feel super scared. The point is to empower us. The point is for a Christian to realize, wait a minute, I want to be authentic. I want to be an integrated Christ follower. I, I want to be the same person in private that I am in public. Amen? That's. And let me tell you something. As your pastor, that's what I want. I worry all the time about how integrated I am. I don't want to be a person who's different here than I am at home in the privacy of my bedroom. I don't want that. I want to be integrated. So my dad used to say to me, Adam, would you say that if your grandmother were here right now? (laughs) He would say, would you watch that movie if grandma was here? My grandmother was a saint. When she died, she was 98. She loved Jesus. She was so sweet. But she was also a Southern Baptist, okay? So she had very high moral standards, all right? And my dad would say, would you do that if your grandmother were here? And Jesus is saying, hey, brother, sister, would you do that if the Holy Spirit was with you right now, if I was with you by my Holy Spirit, and that one day everything will be revealed? Did you know that that's actually reality? That's reality. So Jesus says, be authentic, Watch out for hypocrisy. You have to take a look. I have to look inside. I have to be honest with myself. What am I doing at home, alone, in the privacy of my room? The most powerful thing that could happen in our community is for our community to be filled with authentic, integrated followers of Jesus. Jesus says, avoid hypocrisy, okay? That's number one. Number two, fear. Jesus says, we got to talk about fear. Now, remember the context. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his face to go there, and he knows he'll be tortured and murdered. And he also knows that his disciples will experience similar things. They're with him on the way. And Jesus says, we've got to talk about fear in this world. Got to talk about fear. How are you going to live wisely in a world where you're, con- where you're experiencing opposition to For your Christian faith, you've got to think well about fear. There was one moment in Egypt where I felt really afraid for my life, one moment. Most of the time, I felt totally safe. But there was one moment where I was like, this is a scary situation. We were down, we were not in Cairo. A lot of people said Cairo is kind of a dangerous place. The Muslim Brotherhood is headquartered there. But we actually felt safe in Cairo. It was when we left Cairo and we went to this town called Asut, which is about three hours south of Cairo. And it's a town of about 500,000. And one of the things that happened before we went on the trip is Camille emailed us and he was like, hey, the police in Asut want pictures of you. And we were like... Why would they want that? So we sent pictures of our passport. So the police have our our passports in a suit. And what happened was when we got to a suit, we realized this is a town of 500,000 people. We didn't see a single foreigner for four days. No one, no one from the West Goes to his suit. We were the only white people there, okay? And it was a little nervous. And we, we would, when, what would happen is we'd be, we'd get into this van that had curtains all over the windows. And I'm like, why are we doing this, Camille? And then Camille, Camille, he was so nonchalant about it. He was like, okay, we're gonna drive over here because we don't want the police to see you guys. We don't want the police to know you're here. We're like, what are you talking about, Camille? And finally, one day, I was like, Camille, why are we avoiding the police? And here's what he said, he goes, if the police find out you're here, they'll create a motorcade. They'll they'll overreact, they'll protect... They'll put a police car in front and a police car in back. And you know what that tells people? Shoot in the middle, okay? And we don't want that. We don't want that. So we're like, okay, that's good. Let's avoid the police. So there we are. We, we're going to a church to pick up a pastor named Ben, and we don't want to go on the main road. So Camille has us park in this alley just, just off the main road, and there's no one in this alley, and we're just hanging out in this alley in our van with the curtains drawn. And suddenly I see this Egyptian guy who's doing some construction work in a house next door. I see him look into the van and he sees me, and I'm kind of a pasty white individual, okay? He sees me, and then he elbows his friend, and his friend comes over, and now they're both looking in the van, and then he pulled out his phone, and he starts texting. So I don't know who he's texting. One of the highest population of Salafi, like the radical Muslims live in this town. He's texting. We don't know. Then I see him take a picture of our license plate number. So now my heart's beating, okay? And I kind of tap Camille and I'm like, I think we should leave this alley. Well, right as I say that, five minutes after this guy sends a text, a guy comes around the corner on a bike and he looks like, he looks like a Salafi. He has a long beard. He's dressed in a black robe. He's got the black head thing on and he comes riding and he sees the van and right as he almost as he gets to the van, he puts his hand into his robe and I'm like, it's on, it is on, we're going to heaven, okay. (laughs) And all my stereotypes are coming out. And then he pulls his hand out and he rides past and I was like, oh my gosh. And you know what, brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? The Christians in Egypt live with that every single day, every day. That church, I preached in that church on Sunday morning two years before they blew up a bus outside of that church to try to knock down the stone wall. And you know what happened the very next Sunday? The whole church came back to worship Jesus. Well, Now, why would they do that? Because I think they believe Luke 12, verse 4. Will you look at it? I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body. Now, by the way, when it's totally hypothetical, this verse is easy to believe. Oh, yeah, totally. But there I am in the van. Wait a minute. I'm afraid. Do not kill those who have the power to kill the body, but after that, they can't do anything else. What does Jesus say? Let me tell you who you can fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority over your eternal destiny. That word hell is in the Greek. It's the word Gehenna, and that word is a. It was a location outside of Jerusalem. It was a valley south of Jerusalem. It was like their garbage dump where they would throw their garbage and dead car, animal carcasses, and they would burn stuff. So, imagine a, basically a valley of nonstop burning garbage. That valley Gehenna became the word that the Israelites used to describe hell. Hell's in the Bible, and Jesus says, let me tell you, don't be afraid of people who can take your life here. Be afraid of the eternal living God who has power over your eternal destiny. It's who you fear. And what's amazing, look at the paragraph. The paragraph is really confusing because it starts there. It starts intense, but then it gets, suddenly Jesus turns and he gets really tender and really encouraging. So verse 5, uh, verse 6, he says, there are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than sparrows. So now he's saying, fear not. At the beginning, Jesus is saying, fear, fear the one who has authority over your eternal destiny. But then when he ends, he says, fear not. And the, and the reader's going, well, what is it, Jesus? Do I... Do I fear God or do I not fear God? And I think Jesus would say, yes, yes. Brothers and sisters, listen to what I'm about to tell you, this is so critical. There is a kind of fear in the Bible, it's like a... It's a holy reverence where when you feel it, it it can only happen in your heart. There's a reverence where you recognize who God truly is. That he's eternal, he's powerful, he's loving, he has authority over where we spend eternity. And when you feel that fear with faith in your heart through Christ, it actually leads you to a place where you no longer fear God. Amen? You start with reverent fear about who God really is and it leads you into a relationship with that God through Christ where now you realize I have nothing to fear because God loves me and God sees me and I'm valuable to God. This is the sparrows and the hares thing. It's odd. He goes, sparrows are worthless. You know, uh, five sparrows for two pennies. A sparrow was absolutely worthless to people. And Jesus says, is there a single sparrow on the planet that's been forgotten by God? No. And God has not forgotten you. The hairs on your head, he's numbered them. He knows the number. Can you imagine God counting? One, two, three, now this starts to break down for some of you, all right, I'm not, Pastor Christopher's like, I don't get it. But okay, but the rest of us, were like, I got hair there. I pulled out my phone this morning and I was like, Siri, because I talked to my phone in the morning, and I said, how many hairs does the average human being had? And she knew the answer. It was amazing. Do you want to know what it is? A hundred and fifty thousand hairs. On your head, some of you, most of you, and then take that number multiplied by however many billions of people are on our planet, and you know that God knows that number. One hair falls out, God knows it. You grow another one, God knows it. Okay. If if it is, God knows it. And He doesn't know, He doesn't know stuff like that the way Siri does, where it's impersonal, it's just a computer. No, 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 no. Wait a minute, this is the living creator God of the universe and he knows every tiny detail about your life. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Amen. Amen. Can I ask you a question now? Are you afraid of people in your life right now? It's, it's okay. It's normal. Sometimes you get in a situation and you realize, I'm locked up. I'm, there are, there's a threat in my life, at work, in my neighborhood, in a relationship. Have, have you gotten locked up by fear of man? Jesus wants to encourage you. Let's think about fear. Don't be afraid of what can happen in this life. Turn your heart and faith to the Creator God and do it this morning. Do it today. Hypocrisy, fear, and then finally, and most importantly, your Christian witness. Your Christian witness. Mine and yours. That's what this third paragraph is all about, verses 8 to 12. Will you look at it? Let me remind you. Here's verses 8 and 9. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but... The one who denies Me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Okay, now look at verse 11. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious. Jesus didn't say if this happens. He's talking to His disciples. He says when. This is inevitable. And let me tell you something, there is a truth in this. Okay, sisters and brothers, in every Christian life, mine and yours, there is going to come a day where you are going to be put on the spot for your Christian faith. That day is coming. I'm not saying this to be intense. I'm saying this to encourage you. You need to be ready. That day is coming. A day is coming where your allegiance to Jesus will be put to the test. And Jesus wants you to be ready for it. Why? Because he loves you. Because he cares about your witness in this world. Now, he knew my disi- these disciples, many of them are going to die because they're associated with me. They'll stand trial, and they'll be given an opportunity to renounce my name. And if they don't renounce my name, they will be killed. And luckily in the providence of God. For you and I, most of us will never experience that, maybe, <laughs> but most likely, we will never experience anything like that. But we'll, experience, we'll have our day, you'll have your day at work. Have you, ever, have you been in a situation at work where you realize, I have come to a fork in the road, an ethical situation, and I have a decision to make as a Christian. And my job is on the line. And if I maintain my allegiance to Jesus in this moment, this is critical. Your day's coming. Or imagine a situation. There you are. You're in a room with a bunch of people that you love and respect, and you want to be a part of this circle, and there you are in the room, and suddenly the conversation shifts, and someone starts making fun of Christianity, and and then they start piling it on, and there's laughter and disparaging, and suddenly you realize I'm the only person in this room who loves Jesus. What will I do? I had a brother in our church who this happened to him. He he was on a business trip. He told me the story; was so powerful. He was on a business trip and he was in a he was in a room with a bunch of really high powered people, and he he wanted to be a part of this circle of business people. And they suddenly somebody started making fun of Christianity, and it, it picked up steam. And then suddenly one of them turned to him and he, and they were like, "Wait a minute, you're a Christian, aren't you? Aren't you a Christian?" And they kind of were giggling. And this brother. He described that feeling, put yourself in the room, that lump that rises. He said it was like that fight or flight thing. I'm either going to fight, I'm going to get super aggressive or more likely I'm going to just like cower out of the room, (laughs) you know, isn't that the temptation? And Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute. What will you do on that day? What will you do in that moment? He says to them, don't don't not be anxious. Let me tell you something. You have a gift in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. In that moment, he will give you what to say in that moment. If you open your mouth and you open your heart with faith. Brothers and sisters, that day is coming for many of you. It's coming. And I know you care about this. I know you care about it because I saw your prayer cards. Can I tell you something about the prayer cards really quick? 700 prayer cards. Number one observation, you have a lot going on in your life. A lot of heartache, okay? I mean, we were blown away. We, we pulled together the elders and we would read these cards and we would weep at the intense stuff that's going on in this room. So if you come in here on Sunday and you're sitting there and you're like, all these people have it put together, can I tell you something? They're actually, um, you're doing a lot better than they are, all right? Okay? Just look around the room and go, yeah, I've got it pretty good. There is a lot going on in here. Don't be deceived by, by perception, right? But here's the, th- here's the amazing thing about these prayer cards. The number of you who said, please pray for me for courage, to be a witness for Christ at work, in my family, in my neighborhood. I, I want to honor Jesus. Countless cards asking for that. And you know what? We prayed for that. We prayed for you, every single one of you, by name, by name. So take a stand in that moment. Don't fight, all right? And don't flee. There's a third way. And the third way is, I'm not going to be anxious, God. I'm going to trust you right now. I've got your Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'm going to do one thing before we're done. I'm going to explain verse 10. It's a very odd verse. We look at it? It is a conundrum, to say the least. Verse 10, this verse has been misinterpreted for a really long time in the church. All right? As if to say that there is some secret sin that a Christian can commit and they don't even know they've done it. That's an unforgivable sin. That's not biblical. Here's what's happening in this verse. The problem with this verse is it sounds like Jesus is saying that it's perfectly acceptable to say something disparaging about Jesus, but that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's unacceptable. But this is not what Jesus is saying. All right? First of all, the word blaspheme means to, to say that something is good, to, to, to say about something good that it's actually evil. So it's to flip things upside down. That's what blasphemy is. To say that Jesus is with beelzebub That's two weeks ago. That would be blasphemy. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, before the Holy Spirit falls on Pentecost and believers are empowered by the Spirit to take their stand and witness for me before that day comes, it's understandable that a person would reject the Son of Man because they don't have a demonstration of the Holy Spirit in that proclamation. But on that day, after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit has fallen on believers, And now you and I and believers throughout the ages, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our midst, as we begin to proclaim the truth of the gospel. If someone having heard that proclamation and seen the evidence of the Holy Spirit, they reject Jesus and they walk away, that puts them in a place where they they are not forgiven for their sins. And Jesus is saying this to the believers, He's saying, be encouraged, be encouraged. Not only do you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your midst. I'm going to close with one story about Egypt. One of the most palpable moments for for me was to step into a church in Egypt, the gate opens. You leave the city, you leave the streets, you leave a predominantly, uh, you know, a culture that does not want anything to do with Jesus. And I'm going to be honest with you, in that culture, there was no joy. Okay, this is not to disparage another people group, this is just to say there's no joy in that culture. And then what happens is, you leave the streets, you leave that, and you walk behind A 15-foot stone wall and a gate, and you walk into a church in a suit. And there I am, and I'm looking at this gathering of believers. And you know what I saw? I saw Christian joy. You know what it looked like? It looked exactly like River West, except they were speaking Arabic, and none of them looked like me, okay? And I was sitting there going, this is amazing. You look. I was watching them and going, they look exactly like River West loving one another. I can't get the greeting to stop so I can preach the sermon, all right? It's so annoying. And I was like, this is what it looks like. In a suit, they love each other. They want to be with each other. Do you know what that is? That's a demonstration of the Holy Spirit poured out on a believing body of Christ, saying, let me give you evidence that Christ is real, that Christianity is true. And then God says to the believers, now proclaim that from the mountaintops with courage. Your day is coming. Don't be afraid. Okay. Watch out for hypocrisy. Don't be afraid. Open your mouth and acknowledge Christ and God will bless you. I'm going to pray for you. Leave by your heads. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how much we need this truth today. We confess, Lord, that we need wisdom. It's often very difficult in our world to follow Christ. And we thank you for these reminders that other Christians around the globe are experiencing that and more. Oh, how we pray, Father, for Christians in Egypt, our brothers and sisters, we'll spend eternity with them worshiping you. We pray for them, for their courage, their wisdom. And to know that they're praying for us now. Churches in Egypt are praying for River West. What an crazy thing. God, would you lead our church? We want to know how how are we supposed to come alongside the Christians there? Would you guide us? We pray. In the meantime, would you give us wisdom as a community? We want to live wisely in this world. We pray. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray it. Everyone said Amen. God bless you. River West.